0: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about writing for late night television and performing stand up with a very special guest, a friend of Nick, Simon Taylor. Hello, thanks for having me. Very special. Oh, all very right. Special. No, the specialist. Your old softies. And uh, Simon
1: Taylor wrote for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. All right. So, let's just start from the beginning. What kind of made you want to get into comedy? I think I've just been doing it since
2: I was so young. Like when I was five years old, I was doing Elvis impressions. And Mm -hmm. then when I was eight, I was trying to do stand up in talent competitions at school. And then even in high school, we had comedy reviews. And Mm -hmm. so, I was just always on stage. So, there was this strange duality to what I thought a job should be and a career should be because I was on stage all the time performing all the time but then I always thought oh well you know when I go to uni I'm gonna study psychology and get me a real job like (laughs) Nan wants me to and and I I did that I went to I went to university majored in psychology started working as a behavioral therapist but I'd all I was always performing i was doing magic because i could do it at in my bedroom like mm-hmm. that was kind of my outlet there was a time there was maybe a year where i didn't do any performance stuff and that was a terrible time for me. <laughs> that was a horrible time for me. So I kind of uh, felt fulfilled when I was doing these stage things and writing. And Twitter was a big part of what got me into TV writing and things like that because I just enjoyed writing jokes so much. Mm-hmm. And I was getting all this immediate feedback from people. I was getting these retweets. I'm like, oh, well, those are good jokes then. So I kept doing that type of joke. And I learned to joke write from the masses you know, responding to me. So that was a, a, a big part as well. And I learned to keep it short and tight and remove all the words I didn't need. So there was just this, I, I was just always drawn to performing in comedy and, and, and funny things.
0: Were there any influences on the television part? Or is it really more about the kind of the, the joke aspect, uh, the comedic aspect? Well, we had a host in
2: Australia called Rove Live. Well, that's his name. That show was <laughs> called Rove Live. His name was Rove McManus. Rove is still ridiculous. It's like his name was... Manus face Rove um, quotations
1: live Yeah, yeah.
2: So th- I mean That was a big part of me Because I think I just Always wanted to be interviewed By the famous person Even Letterman I watched Letterman I'm like I want to be on that I want to be in that chair And so to- or, or I wanted to host Those shows as well I wanted I wanted Rove's job I wanted Letterman's job And so Here's a little secret I had never seen an episode of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno before I wrote for it. (laughs) Uh
0: (laughs) Uh-oh. Can you be retroactively fired? Is that a thing? (laughs) Yeah,
2: no, too late. It's all done. Uh, So, I I think it was really Letterman and Rove were the two big TV people that I'd kind of watched growing up that were things that I could aspire to. And so, I, I always had that. And it wasn't until kind of I got my break with Leno that I just... Absorbed everything i watched all the johnny Carson and stuff i watched um kimmel and conan and and all the late night stuff and i became a late night nerd for a good good time so you'd be hard pressed to challenge me on uh on on their stylistic differences because i think i could <laughs> write a I would write a joke for each one of them or i could break down how each of them writes a joke or the jokes they choose at least
0: I was going to ask, what was the, the late night landscape in Australia? Did you guys have the American shows over there? How did that work? Yeah, I wasn't more of a landscape than it was just uh, you know uh,
2: a crack out of the door that you could kind of peer out of <laughs> like it, it was uh, it was really
1: rove. I don't
2: think there was anyone who else was doing a
1: late night. thing?
2: think did for a little
1: while. Yeah, I feel like there were a lot of more panel shows than mm. late night shows, like the Glass House. Um, even I don't know, like Sticks and Specs. Yeah, the project, I guess, does that count? I don't know. Like,
2: no, well, that's that's it's more of a n- news, news thing. New yeah. show. So look, late night talk show format there's only really been that here are the three i can think of there was um steve visard who was just ripping off letterman very very blatantly mm-hmm. doing the same segments and the same bits sean McCarth who was on at the same time as row for a little while but was just too meta i think he was too so many in jokes like very self-referential and i think he admits that he overwrote it that it wasn't his personality shining through it was his you know he was Doing too many bits. The intro was too scripted and too. Where Rove would just come out and just be your mate, and people loved him for that because no one would, no one will comment. Oh, I love Rove, but Macauliffe's a you know a better writer. No one said that. They just go, I love Rove. You know, <laughs> they, no. I guess if if you don't know the technique to something, it's it's not attractive to you. I'll draw a slight analogy here because it's on my mind. If you watch, like, the uh, UFC, the mixed martial arts fighting, people know what boxing looks like. You punch them in the head, you're winning. But then when they get on the ground and they start grappling and doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if you don't know the moves, then you think it's boring. People mm. are like, this is boring. They're just, like, hugging each other. Well, if you know what's happening, like, no, he's got his left leg in here and, no, he's got this guard, he's passing guard and he's doing it. So I think it's it, that can happen sometimes in in entertainment. Where if you're in the world of entertainment, you know the subtle things that someone's doing. So, we, we had that. We had Rove, who was the everyman, and McAuliffe, who was the
1: comedian's comedian. And then, of course, there was a little show on Channel 31 called Live on Bob Oh,
2: yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> my my show part of the landscape well that was that was um that was a long tradition tradition that's how rove got his what, what would we call a mainstream
1: network show yeah what was it called back then studio a or something no or, no, no, no for
2: him it was called the loft oh that's right yeah called the loft away back so wait so
1: <laughs> what is this about now
2: <laughs> so in australia we have what five channels uh abc uh, SBS seven, nine, and ten are the yeah. main networks, and we also have a community TV station, which is there, but probably not as widely viewed. But can like actually, you know what? Sometimes some shows are better viewed than than uh, uh, some of the main networks. Yeah, it's like time. each
1: state and capital city and surrounds has their own kind of community channel where people can mm. come in and then contribute and uh, work together yeah, and make sure yeah. sure
2: and stuff. So, consider it like a local network, but uh, sometimes uh, they all would play the same thing. So, Rove got his, his start on that. He did something called The Loft, which was basically university students learning how to create television. And that tradition's still going. So, I hosted for about three seasons – uh, a late night talk show called live on bowen and uh that uh that was a very important learning experience because you just got to do sometimes you can't always just sit in your bedroom and think your way into a good tv show or think your way into a good performer you have to do it and make mistakes and learn so there's footage of me there's episodes up of me doing <laughs> the live on bowen and all the crap. are they are online they have online
1: sure can link them in the episode show notes yeah and i was actually a writer on that show from season one through to three uh, and as a segment producer for one of those but it was right before you took over hosting it was i was there with um
2: so i think i went four five six yeah yeah Yeah. there you go just
1: missed each other but you were around you were hanging out in the audience and you were doing your stand-up bits and stuff
2: yeah i was always i was i did two did two spots Mm -hmm. i think which was, uh, which was the most on any- <laughs> out of everyone, so I was edging my way into hosting it, I guess.
1: Yeah, it really was a great experience. So, like That kind of place offered those opportunities and- to learn and to really get a grounding in mm. in making TV and writing and-, and working on a schedule and all that kind of thing. I found it invaluable myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I just decided I was going to host it
2: and... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I made the uh, the difficult task of myself to convince everyone else.
0: <laughs> Where do you feel is the main distinction in terms of what you need to host and be funny as a host versus be funny as a joke writer? Hmm. Very different skills
2: because. Um There are plenty of amazing joke writers who don't learn the performance techniques. So there are dramatic skills that you develop on the scene. And there are also sometimes people who who are really good at the dramatic skills, but just don't have good writing and don't say anything that's really relevant. So they can get on stage and just get everyone in a good mood and they can react. And there are comedians who are really good at that. You just put them on stage. They will entertain a crowd. But if you give them, you say, Hey, write a set, write a really strong set. They just can't. They just talk about nothing and banalness. If you want to break it down, I mean, writing has techniques like irony or, you know, pull back and reveal or uh, metaphors and similes. And so these are a list. I could write, give you a list of all the little techniques involved in actually crafting a joke but uh, on stage there's the same. There's holding attention, there's where you stand on stage, there's uh, how well you build tension in the room and release that tension uh, with or without words, you know, where you look, your posture, how you hold the mic, where you walk, when you stop to deliver the joke. These are all factors and they interact with each other, the writing and the performance interact with each other and that's that interaction is is always changing and modulating because there's a million variables because you have different crowds at different times and i think if you if you only do your tv show to uh, an audience that already loves you you'll get really good at that audience but if you're a stand-up and you're touring and you're working you have to perform to you know three people in a Janitor closet <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You have nice. to perform to a thousand people at a theater. You have to perform in a backpackers hostel. You have to perform at a college, and and you just get really good at taking in all the variables and applying your skills regardless. So when you take a comedian and put them on TV, they're probably going to be pretty good at it because they're very adaptable. Uh, when you take a TV presenter who's done one type of audience a lot, they're going to be really good at that audience. But then you put them somewhere else and just, they just right. don't do well. And Sean McAuliffe, I don't know if this is his reason, but he says he's, um, he doesn't really do live performances. He says, I'm not a
1: stand-up. Mm-hmm. And he recognizes he, does, he hasn't developed that adaptability the way that other people have. So is stand-up kind of how you got your start in Australia? And down the line, how do you think that might have influenced your TV writing?
2: Mm, It's difficult for me because I just did everything. I did spoken word poetry. I did, I wrote rap songs. I was a mad rapper when I was 18. I was (laughs) on the rap. I was doing, you know, uh, hip hop for a long time. Uh, I was a dope MC, and so I was writing that and working on music a lot I think a lot of my I think a lot of my rhythm comes from that Hmm. from on stage I have comedy pieces that have a rhythm to it and, and, and a dense structure to it and I think a lot of my Stand up comes from that influence. And if you, if you listen out for it, if you know what's, what to listen for, you go, Oh, yeah, that's clearly a spoken wordy bit. So I, I still have that ability sitting there that I developed. Uh, magic, I did magic for a long time, close up magic and also stage magic and mentalism. And that's where I really developed my awareness of an audience to know what's happening in the crowd at any one time and how to treat participants and things like that so that's where I got that skill cabaret I did music and cabaret and singing and so that gave me sort of a um, a daringness just get out in the crowd and, and connect with people and this philosophy of you want to give an audience a show that they think that's never been done before and that will never be done again. And so give it this 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 feeling of spontaneity and it's just us. It's just you and me, this intimacy. So I got that. And then stand up along the way was a very slow skill to build because it, up until then, everything was so written and crafted for me. And the idea was to now hide the threads and not look, hello, this is my setup. Hello, <laughs> this is my punchline and this is my act out. You've got to hide the threads a little bit and make it seem conversational. So I stopped writing my sets and I would just know the sort of jokes I wanted wanted to make and I know kind of where the punchline would be and just get on stage and just talk my way through it until it tightened up. And so the last three years of shows, I haven't written a thing down on them i just develop an hour of stand up through getting on stage and writing on stage so that's where i'm at now knowing knowing what the structures are but
0: Trusting that you can find them on stage as well. Could you talk a little bit about the the business and the industry side of the stand up community? Specifically, how do you get work? How do you transition from should we show? Well, the short answer is you don't get work. Uh,
2: (laughs) So, this is quite an intense question because there's a lot of mechanics to it. So, is this for people starting out or for currently working? I guess cover all bases, right? Sure. Let's start with uh, noobs. Noobs is the easiest way to, to, to put this is build a product, right? If you have zero material, you have no product. So you're going to open mics and you're going, does this joke work? Does this joke work? Does this joke work? And you keep doing that, asking that question of yourself, do these jokes work until you build enough of them? So you've got yourself a routine and a set. So maybe five minutes and then 10 minutes and 20 minutes. So you're building up your product, your 20-minute set. And an additional question to that is, do these jokes work everywhere? So your five minutes in Silver Lake to the hipsters—is that going to work in Montana at the Outback Steakhouse gig that you're going to do? <laughs> like that? And don't laugh because I've done all of them. I've done it all. I've done hooters. I've done house of blues in New Orleans. I've, you know, you just do everywhere. So keep in mind, this is advice someone gave to me. You're on an apprenticeship when you first start you've got to do every room in every condition the corporates where people are just there for the free alcohol they don't care that their boss paid you whatever money it is to you know they're just sitting around a t- round table with each other talking about who's f- who in the office like that's that's exactly what's happening and so you're on stage going oh hey guys i got some jokes for you no you don't <laughs> care we have free alcohol our bosses you know we got entrees coming. We're talking about, you know, what Dale and Jenny did, you know, in the in the janitor closet. So <laughs> you've got to adapt to that. So know that you're building your product and you know that you need to deliver it in all sorts of circumstances and situations. So once you've built that, and that takes time and that takes money as well. You can, in LA at least, you can drive to three different open mics and not get on. Mm. It's painful. It's painful to do it here. Uh, You go to an open mic and you put your name in the bucket and they maybe pull your name out. Just say they don't. So now you've spent 30 minutes driving to this place, 30 minutes waiting, and now you don't have a gig. So now you've got to drive another 30 minutes or 20 minutes to another place, seeing if you can get on there. But the problem that that creates is just say you do get on, your name gets pulled and you're on in the three quarters in, everyone's pissed off by that stage. So now you don't even have an audience. So you've waited two hours to get on stage for three minutes in front of three people who aren't listening, who are on their phones. So that's a very difficult situation here. So anywhere outside of LA, at least the open mic scene is a community. So if you're in San Fran or if you're in Melbourne or if you're in uh, Singapore or something like that, all the open mic comics know each other by name because it's a smaller community because they're doing stand up to become stand ups and they're just going, all right, I'm building my product. I'm build- building my five minutes, my 10 minutes. All right, I've got a good 10 minutes. I think now I'm going to go do it in other places and see if it works there. So you build your product and you make sure it's actually usable elsewhere, however difficult that is. And then people who see you in the community working on that product will start going hey you're funny come do my show so all of a sudden now after a year of building this set people are, are going to give you some money to go do it in front of their show where they have a proper paying audience so here in, in la sometimes that's colleges i just did UC, ucla and the reason i did that because some dudes i met on the open mic scene have seen my stuff and they're like hey you know we know you can do this um and so i headlined there so and that, look, they knew I could do it because I put on a one-hour show here and showed I could headline. So build your product, show off your product, and then people will will start paying you for the small gigs. Now in a, in Australia and in the UK um, there are different scenes. So in the UK there is there is a comedy circuit there's a tradition of it you could probably make a living off just being a club comic and just going around the country to all the cities and towns and doing club gigs and pubs and things like that probably you can make an okay mm-hmm. living at least you could um from what i heard maybe five ten years ago perhaps it's changing now but you could also get on the college circuit there to some degree as well and corporates but what we also have in australia and the uk is the festival scene so in Australia, the club circuit, maybe if you work, you know, if you headline all the, the, the cities, which is only five twice a year, maybe you'll earn about 12 grand uh, expenses taken away. So what you have to do is you've got to do the festivals. And the festivals in Australia, um, New Zealand, all around the UK, especially Edinburgh, is you design a poster, you pay you know $300 500 registration so you're in the the little guide and you just tell people and you find a venue and you tell people hey I got this show here's my flyer come to my show and you just basically sell your own product you're you're your own salesperson Or you find a producer who's like, you just do the funny things and I'll sell your show. And a publicist who will email the radio people in the newspapers saying, this person's hilarious. What an interesting story they have. (laughs) They just got back from Hollywood where they hugged Danny DeVito. Ask him about that. Oh, ask him about this, you know, uh, time that their their mother died of a heroin overdose. There's a comedian who did that last year. whose mother died of a heroin overdose. That was his press release. After his mother died of a heroin overdose, Corey White got into, you know, stand up and things like that. And this wow. is an amazing story of adversity. And so you just draw people into your show. And so then this is where the biz comes out of the show biz. So now you've spent all your time going, well, being a comedian i'm just going to be creative and make jokes well no now you have to hustle now you now it's biz part of it you have to uh, get attention get people to your show sell your tickets and then from there the word of mouth will help and newspaper articles will help and and now you're selling products so if you can do that let's hypothetically say for an australian because that's what i am i do perth the start of the year in january as a stand-up i do adelaide i do brisbane some years I do Sydney, I do Melbourne and potentially New Zealand. Sometimes you can do those festivals as well. And you do them and you try sell as many tickets and hypothetically say you've earned $30,000 from all those festivals. Then you got to stretch that out over June, July when there's no work. Or you do what I do and come to America and work here and, and write for TV shows or go to clubs and things like that. So I know this is all very – This I hope this isn't boring to people, but this is the banal reality of, oh, I love doing jokes on stage. All right, well, if you want to make a living out of it, now you have to have the – boring admin side of it and you have to have the boring tension grabbing side of it so that, that that's that that's the reality um for for the festival world here in america it's very hard to become a club comic i don't think there's any really clear route uh the only way i think someone who is unknown can can do the club circuit is if a headliner asks them to open for them or the club that you've been going to for the past five years lets you host At Mm N M C because just went up to a comedy club and I did a small spot because I said, hey, I'm from out of town. Here's my reel and I've written for The Tonight Show and things like that. They go, oh, yeah, we'll give you five minutes on a Sunday. I'm like, all right, that's fine. A gig's a gig. Went out, did it, did really well. And I said, you know, what's the chance of getting more work? They said, well, there's none. I'm like, what do you mean? They go, well, you're not a headliner because no one in the country knows you. They go, the headliner chooses their support act. So there's no spot there. And we reserve our MC spots for... Our locals who have been coming here for the last five years, being open micers here and then getting to the stage where they can be MCs. And they only get 50 bucks anyway. So here I am, eight years into being a full time performer, six years into being a full time stand up. And there's actually no way to approach a club and get work from them. The only way seems to be through meeting a headliner who will give me a support spot. Or getting enough of a profile to draw ticket sales in for them. And it's a strange irony. You could have the greatest comedy product in the world and still not get the gig. And that's a harsh reality that people need to know. It's like, hey, I'm better than that headliner. So what? They're more famous than you. But it's a balance as well because there are people who got YouTube famous and get on stage, and they suck, and they don't have a product. Mm-hmm. So it's that perfect balance between product and and profile. And people will get shitty at you uh, in the comedy community if they think your profile is bigger than your product. Mm. And there will be people who get salty when they know their product is bigger than their, their profile because everyone else is getting these gigs and they're like, "But I'm better." So there's almost like it takes the industry two years to catch up to how good your product is sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not a easy world to navigate because it's very rare that someone is as good as their profile is, that they line up perfectly, that everyone's talking about this dude and they're as good as their product and that's that that varies all the time so you just got to accept that's part of it and then you know work it
1: in, in any way you can sounds like there's definitely some parallels there to the world of you know screenwriters yeah. in regards to knowing the right people uh going out there and selling yourself and, and networking and you know you can write sure. the best script in the world and it still might not get made unless you do all that extra legwork to go with it
0: yeah i was going to ask what what is the networking aspect on with the headliners do you go out and just like treat business cards like it's an awkward uh no
2: it doesn't work like that i think in stand-up at least the good thing is that there is a level of purity you go into a new scene or you meet people for the first time and comics will be a bit standoffish they'll be like oh hey yeah welcome to town or whatever what's up and they won't judge you until they see your set so i've had times where i've gone into a, a, a room or i've gone into a town or a club and i've said oh hey everyone and people are like eh, whatever they just grunt at me and then i get on stage do a set and afterwards they're like Oh hey man, what's up? Oh, this is sweet. Well to tell us about your life. You're in town. So all of a sudden they open up. And I'm guilty of it too. I'll have I'll see someone. Yeah, I'm guilty of seeing an out-of-towner and just dismissing them until I see them crush or see that I like their set. So we don't do business card swaps. Our business card is our set. And mm-hmm. so
0: there is there is a purity to it in that sense. <laughs> So you talked a little bit about this idea of a profile that you need to have to get those gigs and so on. Mm. How do you put yourself out there? Is it just Twitter? Is it YouTube? What are some elements of
2: it? I go on all the hot podcasts like Paper Team. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I do the Coca-Cola approach. I just do all the things. Mm. I do. I have a big Twitter. I'm posting videos on Facebook all the time. I have a YouTube. I have a Snapchat. I have Instagram. And I just look at those social media formats and go, how do I best maximize what's on there? And then I build up a mailing list. And so when I have shows on, I contact people and say, hey, this is on. And hey, maybe win free tickets. And so you, you, you build it that way. Also, I have confidence in my product. So sometimes you have a really good show and you just give away a lot of free tickets to the first couple of nights of the show. And so people, the word of mouth spreads because people will, you know, spread the word on a good show. Uh, so other things, uh, you know, you push for TV spots. Uh, I have an agent in Australia that just has the TV connections. And that, that became an important part of my year this year because I'd been trying for a long time to get on these showcases, uh, TV showcases. And I couldn't, I couldn't get on because I just, I wasn't in the click. I wasn't in the, with the cool people. And then I got an agent and then all of a sudden I have it because they're in the click. So you make friends with people who are friends with the people with keys to the gate, so to speak. So then I got that spot. And then when it came uh, later in the year, all these TV people had seen me on that spot. and like, oh, well, we'll come to your full show. They see my full show. And then all of a sudden I have a special. So television spots are important. So you connect with the people who are connected to TV. And look, it is the same with screenwriting because keep in mind, I pitch TV shows all the time, you know, writing a uh, a sitcom pilot at the moment, um, something that I've done before and I've written TV formats, documentary formats, and also game show formats and things like that. And I've had situations looking back where the people that I, the production house that I was working with just didn't have the connections to the network the way that someone else did. And so I've had, I've had ideas stolen because the production house were just so careless in the way that they, they pushed my idea. They just basically gave it the the whole pilot to the network. And just said, "Here it is. Here's everything. Here's the ideas. Here, all the episode layout." And the network says, "Oh yeah, we're not interested in working with that dude um, because I didn't have a profile, and or them, they didn't have, they didn't have the, the 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 credit. They weren't trusted by the network. They weren't close enough to the network." And then six months later, I see this. No, you know, it was a bit later. It was probably about a year later. I see the exact show being done and it just infuriated me because the production house was like, the idea wasn't good enough. I was like, it was amazing idea and it, it and it was totally viable and perfect for that network. They just didn't have the hustle. To to get the network. They didn't they didn't champion me in a way that I think they should have because the way I see it When someone like Gerard Carmichael gets a show on NBC the network doesn't go to stand-up gigs They don't watch all the stand-ups and know what's going on They don't see a spectrum of all the their basics. Someone has championed him and saying this is the dude You need this dude on TV. He's amazing You need this and it's going to be the same with screenwriters. You need an agent that comes in and says this is the guy This is the guy or girl, this is who you need to be. I'm telling you, amazing, undeniable that this person should be there. Now, that attitude is, in, in my opinion, is a must. How good the product is is gonna burn you later. Like <laughs> if it is a good script, then you'll be fine. But if it's not, then you know you're gonna burn your bridges as you go along because people don't like being uh had. In a sense. Mm. So when I got to a situation where I'm in front of Jay Leno and someone's saying, this is Simon Taylor, he's a very funny comedian, you know, um, he's a writer, he'd be, you know, he'd be great. And Jay takes a risk on me. I had to send in two sheets of jokes the next day. So imagine if they sucked. Like, imagine if I hadn't spent all those <laughs> years, it'd be like, oh, well, fuck, I didn't trust my producer anymore. And mm. I don't trust kids who tell me they're the hot mm. shit. And that happens in LA a lot. They're, everyone's saying they're amazing. So it, it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes, there becomes a difficulty, a barrier where people's like, yeah, sure you are. Sure, you're amazing. Mm. And so I face that here coming away from Australia as a headliner, someone who has done an hour, show for the past six years i've done a different hour every year i've built up this i i i have enough confidence in my product but then you get over here and everyone's talking about well i'm an amazing comic and like well have you done the hours that i've done and so you have to be a little objective sometimes it's very i i'm riddled with self-doubt most of the time and so it is very hard to go no, 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 I'm actually really good. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to do that because you've got the voice in the comedian in your head going, shut the hell up, you're not good. Well, you think you're good now? You think you're good? Yeah, you watch yourself burn. So you've got that voice in your head, but sometimes you just have to take the creative, insecure mind away and put the business mind in, or you find an agent who will do that for you, who will say, this is the person, this is the script. I'm telling you, this is the show. And I'm doing it now with my agent. I'm just telling them, I'm saying, I just wrote a format, a game show format. I'm like, this is it. This is the one. This is, I've I've done all the research. I know all the shows. We're pushing this. And let's talk about strategy. And they're like, all right, we'll read the pilot. And I'm like, forget the pilot. This is it. Trust me. Mm -hmm. This is going to, this is going to be it. So let's start talking strategy and how we do it. You can read the pilot. Sure. Go through it, have a read so you know what it's about. But this is the show that we're getting up and for these reasons because you you have to know your target sometimes if you feel like you know your target then you know the approach what can happen with networks and tv and i'm sure you've read that stuff about um do you ever read that stuff about sony and assassin's creed versus uncharted so Mm. sony were gonna decided they're gonna do a a video game movie and it was gonna be uncharted and they're like, there's this email leak that everyone got and the, the execs are like, oh sweet, so who should we get to direct this? Oh, didn't that didn't the guy do a, a documentary about Donkey Kong? So they get this like indie <laughs> documentary maker. King of Kong. King of Kong, yeah. You know, great documentary, was, yeah. got nothing against that dude. But to direct an Indiana Jones style movie. I mean, that's what Uncharted is. It's Indiana Jones' big advent- epic adventure. Right. Now, that dude, good on him. Like, sweet, he got a big gig. But that's not the skill he was building. The skill he had been building was indie doco style, you know, ga- th- just because the subject was it. So, Sony didn't know what the f*** they were talking about because they think, oh, that's a gaming thing. Let's get the gamey guy. <laughs> not realizing this is an Indiana Jones thing. This is a Spielberg-style film, mm. Uncharted. And then there was a email th- thread, and it was as simple as this. Sony asked someone. The execs asked someone. Wait, which sold more units, Assassin's Creed or Uncharted? They go, "Oh, Assassin's Creed." Oh, okay, we're doing that one then. <laughs> <laughs> so then it stopped even being. So you know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta right. know what your target is. Your target is this this network exec who is just crunching numbers. So sometimes your pitch is not. This is my story. This is the plot. This is the summary. Here's the log line. This is the you know act two, and then these are the character development. Those guys do not give a f- about that. Sometimes you go in and going, "Hey, here's a demographic. We know that this audience are actually highly engaged in this style of um, drama this drama has been po- or vampire things have been popular recently or we have this we know that the zombie demographic uh, the, the the people who enjoy that well, Wait, I, this, b- the zombie demographic the zombie demographic, <laughs> yeah exactly we undead people will, will watch <laughs> the show they are definitely <laughs> uh so they you know you go to people th- there is zombie fans that will just buy everything so you say hey we know this demographic exists give us money for it you will make your money back here and uh it will potentially i mean This is what happens with superhero films. Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll just do... I mean, we're going to do Batman. Let's see whether the script is good. Is the script good? doesn't matter. It's going to... We'll make our money back. 70% of it's going to be from overseas. They're going to double it into another language. They just want to see Batman punching people. Who cares? That's their (laughs) attitude. We spend our time in this world of... Let's like you know the ship building a ship in the bottle. Let's look at oh let's get the master. Oh no, it's a millimeter off. We go and an exec comes along and goes oh sweet ship in a bottle. I'll buy that. Yeah, but the I just want to get the color of the deck to match. The, <laughs> no one gives a we're just pe- ship in a bottles are popular now. Sell it, put a price tag on it. It's done. So that that's important if you're pitching TV. What is their criteria? And sometimes it could be, you know, an invisible target. You don't know what their criteria is. Mm-hmm. But if you go in and 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 your agent saying, "This dude, oh my god, the mind on this guy. This guy's going to make you a lot of money. Connected with the nerd culture, is going to write the, the next big thing. You got to get this guy. Let's get him on a project for real. You're going to love him. Here's this idea." perfect for people who love zombie films killer zombie movie it's going to be awesome we'll get jake gyllenhaal as a lead it'll be amazing and they're like oh and all they're hearing is like money 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 so keep in mind that that business side um has to be understood or you have to find someone who understands it to champion you and that's that's a harsh reality and and, and maybe it's not even that harsh maybe it's just a, a reality that we all deal with in every aspect of things so i think everyone has a story of I swear my product is better but so-and-so got the gig well you should learn from them and work out how they got that
1: gig so just pulling back for a second to you mentioning being in front of Jay Leno how did all of that really come about how did you get in that place and have that opportunity I did a stand-up gig here in
2: LA. I, my friend was living in West Hollywood here. Oh, sorry if I revealed your location. <laughs> uh, I've revealed the back cave. I got people are going to just like show up and announce now. Just walk around <laughs> West Hollywood looking for you guys. Friend of mine knew I was a writer and said, "Come to West Hollywood, fly over to LA, and help me write this show I'm writing, just like a stage show." So I flew over, thought I'd have a little holiday. I get off the plane and my friend says, "Oh, I got you a gig at Meltdown Comics." So I do an 8 minute set of Meltdown and after that set a producer from the Tonight Show comes up to me and says, Hey, you're so funny. You just come hang out. Come hang in the Tonight Show. I'll we'll get you a ticket. And I'm like, All right, free ticket. So I go to the Tonight Show, see how it works. I'm blown away by how everything's working. I'm looking at the people holding the, 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 the cue cards and the way the cameras move. And I was just really enamored by it. I'm like, this is the pinnacle of, of showbiz for me. And I had seen Johnny Carson up to that point. And so I, I did really love that world. And afterwards, I'm leaving, and the producer's like, oh, no, 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 you're coming backstage. I'll introduce you to Jay. So backstage, I I meet Jay, and the first thing I said to him, and the reason I said this, because there were maybe like five other people who got to meet him after the show. There's always like half a dozen VIPs and they were saying uh oh hey Jay you're great and he's like oh where are you from and he's like oh we're from Minnesota and he's like oh yeah I played the Bunkers comedy or whatever club so he was saying the same thing to everyone oh I'm from New York oh yeah I played Gotham and just so that and I'm like I don't want that experience so I got to see the interaction and the moment everyone got with Jay and I when I got my turn the he was in autopilot he was like oh where are you from and I just I cut him off I'm like hey Jay Leno I'm gonna write for you one day And he laughed and he's like, oh, okay, yeah, right, sure. And then the producer came along and said, Oh yeah, Simon's a great writer. And he's like, Oh, okay, all right, we'll send your jokes in. So I just had the boldness to steer the conversation where I want it to be in a funny way, like with enough tact and charm and not being aggressive. And the producer championed me, so I had someone saying, Yes, I vouch for this. And then Jay was just also the loveliest guy, and it's like, All right, send some jokes in, prove yourself. So I went home, I wrote two pages of one-liners, just all sorts of things like, you know, Obama did this and you know, standard monologue jokes. And the next day, they sent me a contract and it was a surreal hollywood moment so within a week of being in la i was
1: a writer for the tonight show at 24 what was the contract like per joke joke
2: get paid per joke they use
1: so did you get to go into the studio and work with a room or is it more just a freelance thing we just send stuff in like
2: Well, here's the thing. I didn't have a visa in America at the time. And when I got the contract, I flew straight back to Australia. So what I was doing was just faxing jokes to Jay. I'd do an email to fax situation because he still used fax machine. (laughs) So he'd take the page out, go to his office, write the ones he liked on the page, give it to his producer who would then put them on little cue cards, little hand system cards. And then he would have, you know. 500 jokes on system cards probably actually probably not that much maybe a couple hundred jokes on system cards and he spent the day just sorting through them getting down to his favorite 30 and then the head writer and and him would you know swap ones out and then put them on the big cue cards and that's how they do it every day when i visited la i came and hung out in the studio and you know, and uh, watch rehearsals and hung out backstage and things like that. But I was also on the road. I was a stand-up, so I'd be in the middle of Singapore or Indonesia doing a stand-up gig, and then go home, look at the mm. American news, send jokes in. So I was I was touring stand-up while I was a writer as well, mm. which was so perfect because I'd, I I personally don't like desk jobs. So I um, when I write, I always I always seem to write when I'm you know, driving or when I'm in transit or just before I go on a gig or things like that. I I find it very, um, I I find it's against my personality to sit in a white office, which I I have done. I did for um, the Sean McAuliffe show on ABC in Australia. I did for a while and I just, to be honest, I hated it. I hated the environment, but I accepted the opportunity and, uh, the lessons to learn from it so so that was that was kind of like it was the perfect scenario with leno just send jokes in every day
0: and we'll pay for the ones that he used <laughs> How do you uh, stay fresh and generate so much content on a daily basis? I just have rules. I just set myself little mini goals. I, before I wrote for Leno, I would always
2: say 10 jokes on Twitter a day. And then it became 10 good jokes. Like <laughs> you need at least, it became, you need at least 20 retweets by the end of the day. And you keep writing jokes until you get, you achieve 20 retweets. And what that does is it means that you're writing jokes to, th- that that, are, that work, that are effective, that make people want to retweet them so just set yourself little goals of like i've got to write a page every day i did this cool thing this year called um the three-day novel contest it's i think it's based in canada toronto maybe and you have three days to just to write out a novel so you can come in with a plan you can come in with beginning middle and end but you can't have written any of it and then on the f- the friday you wake up at you know 12 a.m or whatever time you think you can handle <laughs> And you just start writing and you just, it forces you to create this system of, I need to get another 700 words done by four o'clock. If I want, if I want to stay on track, otherwise I'm going to be behind. And it just shows you that you can be regimented in your goals to be creative. And that, that's important to me. So every day I need to achieve something in terms of writing. And I just, I punched out a, a pilot the other day just because I'm like, it's, it's, it's done by today. There's no, it has to be done by today. I'm just been really disciplined at setting goals and, and sticking to them. And if I make it, it's like, well, you well, tomorrow. You gotta to get it done tomorrow. There's no excuses now. And so I would create enough discipline in that sense. So uh mini goals. Mini goals that result in
1: uh in in major goals. So you're obviously not someone then who subscribes to that idea of waiting for the muse to strike or that you know.
2: is the biggest piece of shit i've ever heard <laughs> the muse will strike but only when you're in an environment where you're you've set yourself up for success for mm-hmm. you i mean there's balance in life in distracting yourself and whatnot but you don't sit what do you want well, you sit in your bedroom on your couch in silence until the muse stri- <laughs> I don't, you, you've got to be you've got to find that balance of well you pu- push yourself to work and create and produce and the muse will be floating around and it'll it will strike sometimes and it'll give you the idea you need but if you're not in the habit of working the muse could be talking to you when you don't actually have any output i think it's a, it's i know it's a um you know such a figurative idea but if you if you don't actually build the the skill as you go if you don't get good at writing jokes just because you think of the best joke in the world what now do you know the word economy do you know how to structure it do you know how to deliver it now because you haven't practiced the actual skill Mm -hmm. and just because you have this amazing inspiration this amazing idea you don't know how to to actualize it now so there's a balance between the skill and the creative inspiration
1: and creative inspiration on its own is not enough So do you ever find yourself encountering, you know, writer's block or is that also more a fiction of just not having the discipline?
2: No, I have writer's block in the sense of just being drained and tired and emotionally not in a good, you know, spot. I don't know. I think writer's block may be potentially just another word for having, you know, being a bit down and being, being um, not in an emotional state to be productive. And that's, you know, that's a chemical thing and that's totally acceptable. I've, you know, I've had, I've had three days where I've just been just so exhausted and going, I need to do some stuff, but I just couldn't, you know, I've just been traveling too much. I've been on the road. My mind is just fried. There's exhaustion and there's, there's also like being in your own little bubble of only writing these style of jokes for so long and you feel like you've maxed it out and you don't have any, you don't have any perception of alternative forms of creativity at that time. So that, you know, those can all happen, but I think uh, giving it a name like writer's block and making it sound like some magical fairy mm. blessed you with it or cursed you with like it. Like you diagnosed mm-hmm. with
1: a condition that's incurable or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, I, it's I the th- wrong way to think about I th-
2: it. I think, yeah, I think uh, you can say I got a bit of writer's block as a shorthand for there's some stuff going on in my life right now that's not helping me be as productive as I want to be. Mm. Totally acceptable. But yeah. I, I, I just be, be careful with uh, with these metaphors we use of writer's block and a muse, we can be a little more systematic and detailed than that.
0: Are you able to quantify what a successful joke is on Twitter versus Snapchat versus the late show? Like how do you figure out? Because you did did mention that tailoring a joke for the the Twitter audience is very different from, you know, the late show or uh, or even Snapchat.
2: I have an understanding of it, but you don't always... You don't always know sometimes. I ran into the trap of it again the other day. Sometimes uh, a joke is to be written. It's in the written form because it's about spelling or something like that. Or a joke structure, when it's written and it's short, your eyes can take it in fast enough that the punchline hits you fast enough. But if it's in verbal form, the punchline comes too late. Um, or it comes the wrong way around. So I had a joke that did really well on Twitter as well because if 10,000 people are watching it and it's a very niche, uh, sorry, if 10,000 people are reading it or breezing past it and it's a niche reference, like uh, I did a Leonard Cohen joke the other day and a Jeff Buckley joke. Out of those 10,000 people, there are enough people who get the reference who think that's a really funny joke and they will re- retweet it so you get like 30 people retweeting you because they get the reference and they retweet it and people on their feed probably get the reference too because they're mm-hmm. friends or at least they follow each other and so all of a sudden you have found a niche within the world of twitter but if you go onto a stage where not everyone really knows who jeff Buckley is and they don't really know his relationship to Leonard Cohen. And they, and everyone in the room may not even know the news that Leonard Cohen had died. So on Twitter, people are news savvy and they're also connected in a way where they're in their own little group spread out all around the world. Mm-hmm. So know how the audience is actually structured there. So there's intricacies to that. When you're in a room full of people, what is it? What is, the, what are the things that everyone knows here? You know, uh, a joke with particular references may not work on what's particularly poignant to people. So, in in um, in India, I can I did a joke about um, holidays there, and you can have the knowledge that there are a lot of festivals and holidays in India, uh, and and I think people around the world know there's a lot of festivals and holidays in India. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think I've seen the festivals and the holidays, and yeah, that 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 I. I kind of know that um and if i did that joke here about their festivals and holidays people would go like huh okay i guess that's kind of funny but in india it is so poignant to them because they live it so even the like the even the knowledge isn't enough how relevant it is to you is important as well mm-hmm. so so keep in mind on different platforms what is relevant to people on those platforms um what is the actual format of the joke is it written or is it done something on snapchat you've only got a few seconds snapchat and vine is different because on vine you would have a loop so you can you know there's there's a comedy to how you know, you've got six seconds and it's just going to spin back around and so something that is grabbing really that can grab you r.i.p
0: so. vine by the way what's that yeah it's, RIP no, vine.
2: it's Yeah, it's dead mm. i guess it didn't that format didn't didn't <laughs> didn't survive long enough so so Snapchat jokes I have are usually just my face because a face is very, this is my old cognitive psychology coming back. Humans are attracted to faces. So if, if it's you and your face doing the selfie, people are more likely just to watch it a bit longer and you can get the joke out but if it's like oh i'm taking a you know a a video of an empty glass it's not that visually pleasing as opposed to a face so you've got all these psychological principles that go into it and people just work it out eventually as well you know you have these people on facebook who have millions and millions of views in their facebook videos because they start the video going hey i'm so and so and if you uh want to see this next amazing magic trick click the like button right now and, it, and, and let me promise you this if i get your card correctly make sure you share that video good deal all right let's do it so they're just playing the format mm-hmm. to make sure that they actually get the max out of it that's important as well keep in mind uh We know these things from like YouTube. You know, you see the little thumbnail of the cleavage. Like how many people were doing that for, for a (laughs) long time? You just see cleavage and, you know, they're getting big views just because they, people were, were clicking the the thumbnail. So an attractive thumbnail. Now, let's not deny that humans are attract. The the definition of attractive is that it, it attracts you. So that was a little technique people were using to get the click on the video. And then whether it was a good video or not Was yet to be determined
1: So it sounds like you're always Writing a joke with the audience in mind And even kind of tailoring it on the Mm, fly or not No,
2: you write the joke And then you decide where it goes At least I do I mean, I'll just write what I think is Because if you start cock blocking yourself And going, hmm What's going to get me some good Snapchat thing You know, you just get on Snapchat And you kind of know You know, you do the joke And you're like, oh, is this going to work here? Yeah, I think it'll work here Send, you know That's at least how I do it So don't stop the creativity Because of the business side it goes show biz start with the show stuff then <laughs> you do the biz stuff write in passion editing cold blood i think that is the at least the
1: mantra that i i work by so recently you were on a pilot for comedy central with your friend justin mm-hmm. willman how mm-hmm. did all that come about that was a situation where he
2: was Doing a
1: live show
2: at Nerdist and I was helping him write the live show and I was in the live show. We, we had a big night where we had all his agent and, uh, managers got execs from, from different networks in. I think we had FX, we had True TV. I think we had Comedy Central. Comedy Central were just first in, best dressed. Mm-hmm. They just said, yep, we love it. We'll get it. Um, and then they gave him a, a special, but, that's when I got live on Bowen. So I went back to Australia and started hosting my own talk show. And he was doing that. He filmed that special. So Justin Wellman's Slide of Mouth, which aired on Comedy Central. So I was involved in getting him that uh, initial special. And then they did a pilot, uh, which really was just timing. It worked out. I'd finished all my festival run and uh, I'd just got my visa here. So I, I flew back here and we worked on the uh, Comedy Central pilot. And um, we... Uh, It was an interesting process and I learned a lot of things from it that there were, it's actually really difficult to talk about it because it's not my project. So I don't know what Justin's okay with me saying and not saying, but I I, I think I can say that it, it, it certainly lived into that invisible target thing. Mm-hmm. of wait who are we doing this for like is this are we writing the best show that we like or are we writing this to satisfy the comedy central execs or are we doing this the production house of sensibilities or do we have a specific demographic in mind so that was one of the challenges of writing where we'd write a thing and then there'd be a debate on wait is this who's this going to satisfy because we had things in the writer's room that we thought were the funniest things in the world but then someone went yeah but that's not comedy central and so all of a sudden this idea idea got shut down so that was actually a challenge in the process worth you know keeping in mind that that can be difficult when you don't actually know what your where your product is going so i guess it it goes back to that question you just asked before do you what i mean where do you start do you think about who is it for and then write the joke maybe my answer before was was too much about social media in terms of demographic yeah you got to know what your audience is so social media, the answer is come up with a joke and then find the, the medium for it. But in terms of the question is, are you speaking to mothers age 40 or bros at college age 20? <laughs> that Then you know, all right, well, I'm going to do these jokes for these people and these ones for them. The
0: other, what do you feel the big differences between writing alone for someone else, like Jay Leno, versus writing in a group for a common project? Well,
2: because it all filtered through Jay, I would learn his sensibilities. So, like little things, if I saw a joke, there was a joke, it was like, um, the punchline was, teenagers aren't smart enough to work out how to have sex. That was the, I should have just done the whole joke, but anyway, that was a, that was, a, that, was, a, that, was a, that was the punchline. I'm only giving Go. you punchlines here, no setups. In my jokes just (laughs) punchline so anyway the punchline was teens aren't smart enough and then jay when he did the joke said teens are too stupid and so i learned from that i'm like oh he would rather just go for the jugular he'd rather call someone stupid for the for the laugh and get a bigger laugh because it is more intense to say you guys are stupid then you guys aren't smart enough that's a very soft simon taylor way of Mm -hmm. going guys come on you know get yourself together (laughs) so you write to his sensibilities and i ended up just writing to what i knew he liked doing when you're in a writer's room, I think, uh, you just, you put the idea out there in the way you think it's funniest. Then the room will go, oh, great. Well, all right. We'll tweak it here. Why don't we say this word and, and, and that word? Because if you start trying to tweak it beforehand, then you, you might be in, in, trouble if you don't know who it's to, you know. So Jay, I knew exactly what he liked and I could eventually word it the way I know he likes to be things to be worded. But, uh, in a writer's room, perhaps you just get the funniest ideas out first and then you guys can refine it together.
1: So, what prompted your decision to kind of move to the U.S. for good? And you know, do you have a visa to get here, a green card, or what's the? Well, I'm
2: not moving to America for good. I think it's just this is where my work is now. So mm-hmm. I got the O1 visa, which is the dumbest name for a visa: <laughs> alien of extraordinary ability. <laughs> so I'm it's an, the elf visa or something. Right? Yeah, I'm the alien of extraordinary ability, and. uh it was just because I was offered work here. Mm-hmm. So, if there were no work in America, I wouldn't have moved here. But I was offered work and I came over and I, I, I did it. Um, because, you know, the UK has work as well. And I could have just hung around Australia and gotten a commercial radio, which was offered to me, which I said no, because it just was, it, I think it was another desk job. Mm-hmm. But maybe i'll do it when I get back as well So I was just kind of following where where my opportunities were So I think the tonight show was such a random thing to happen I mean I came over to help a friend out with writing a show and I ended up writing for the tonight show so it'd be silly of me not to capitalize on um on the 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 opportunity that I got here the the path of least resistance so to speak so coming to america was not let me you know take on america or is, hey America's trying to take me in
1: uh so what are you currently working on and what do you think is next for you now
2: i'm working on so many things i'm working on my new live show which is opens in january in perth it's called spectacular ish so that's that's going to be an hour of stand-up so i'm working on my live show i'm working on a, a game show I wrote the pilot, and I'm vehemently pushing my agents to push it to networks. I'm working on a sitcom pilot, partly because of your encouragement of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of part of my show the other day. Awesome. And I am focusing on those three things at the moment because I've got a few other nice little things coming out. I've got the special coming out in January and so that, I think that will get me a bit of attention and I want to make sure I have things to offer people. So if people are like, hey, you're great, can you do another live show? Yep, I've got a, another live show ready mm-hmm. to go. Oh, hey, have you thought of, sitcom yep here yeah, i've written it <laughs> yeah you know so 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 those are those are my priorities at the moment in anticipation for the special to drop you've also got like little projects that niggle at the back of your mind like oh a novel i've re- i wrote that novel and i'm like i need to edit it you know it's terrible but it, 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 can, <laughs> it may be you know so i do want that novel to come out at some point and uh building the online thing was partly just I like filming sketches, so I'm going to film some sketches with friends over the next few weeks. Just all the things. I have three main projects, and then I have all these peripheral things going on.
1: Will that special be available online for people to view, or worldwide, or is it...
2: Yes. It's undetermined whether it'll just be from my website or be Netflix, but it's going to be on ABC in Australia. Mm -hmm. Then it'll be ABC online, iView, which is just Australia. For a certain amount of time, that was just the deal. We're we're hoping it'll be international Netflix, but perhaps it'll be just... uh, uh, private uh, server, Louis CK style, totally like everyone else right now. Style, <laughs>
0: everyone, everyone throws it on there. Is there anything that you're watching on TV right now that gets you inspired? Westworld's kind of interesting. I mean, I didn't really, I don't really like watching TV. <laughs>
2: the irony to that. What,
0: what are you doing in this podcast? Man? I mean, it's so weird. I do.
2: I do well, I don't like
0: watching. Narrative
2: show, I mean, my shows were just like Seinfeld, which are just compartmentalized shows. Actually, that's, I I don't like season narratives, to be honest. Just my my temperament. I can't, like, I, I didn't get through The Wire. I didn't get through The West Wing. I didn't get through Breaking Bad. I just I lose interest after a while, and
0: it's all about the episode. Am I right, Nick? (laughs) We just had an episode about serialized (laughs) versus episodic. We totally get that.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I just uh, I mean that's where my uh, my shows are Scrubs and Seinfeld and Mm -hmm. uh, even Brooklyn Nine Nine because I could stop watching it and not worry. You know what I mean? Or Archer or things like that. But to be honest, the things the TV that I watch the most most is late night and talk shows, Mm -hmm. like I, I and game shows. So it's really just that entertainment style format. Studio, panel shows, entertainment style. I enjoy late night. I'll, I'll consume late night. I'll consume panel shows.
0: That's where most of my TV
2: watching comes from.
0: Are there any resources that you would want to give for aspiring writers, comedians, joke writers, uh, etc.?
2: Poking a Dead Frog. That's a
0: really no, great I book. I have that one. Poking
2: a Dead Frog is really good. It uh, breaks a lot of those things down. Stuart Lee's books... Have you heard of those? Stuart Lee is very uh, good at analysing his stand-up shows, so he'll explain why the joke went here or why he repeated something here, and so he's very analytical. So, poking a dead frog and uh, any of Stuart Lee's analyses of his his own work books that I think have actually genuinely helped me in 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 the writing comedy writing style of things. Also big one is just go online and look up basic story structures if you keep reminding yourself of the basic story structure you can make sure you don't fall into the trap of coming up with these complex monstrosities of frankenstein (laughs) scripts and then the main character dies but comes back to life and then is another you know just uh make sure you know your basics and to be honest i learned that from improv that was i didn't even mention that was another thing i was doing in improv, we learned basic story structure. What's a horror? What, you know, what happened in a horror? Oh, it's done in these settings, whether it's, you know, trying to escape or it's in the woods or so know, know your basics so well can try to treat yourself as a jazz musician in times like i know the scales so well so when i don't do the scales i'm i feel comfortable you know when i when i play with it just keep keep feeding yourself the basics and there's a million of them online and variations of it there are ted talks and people talking about story and
1: and whatnot so do all the things. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Simon, for coming. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you have uh, some reviews for us, which we would love, you can go to paperteam.co/ That's .co, not .com. Apparently, we didn't have the money for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was
0: already taken by some mystery person.
1: <laughs> uh, all of your iTunes reviews will help us get new listeners and, uh, and build our little community. And as always, I'm on the Twitterverse at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And what are you, Simon? Mr. Simon
2: Taylor. Ooh, Mr. F. <laughs> oh, what? oh, wow. I didn't realize it
0: warranted an ooh.
1: <laughs> it's just very fun. It's very polite. That. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And
0: uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, you can send them at ask at Once again, that is co-not.com. And we won't be seeing you guys next week because of Thanksgiving, even though there's not much to be thankful for this year. But <laughs> nonetheless, we'll see you guys in two weeks on Monday, December 5th. All right. See you
1: then.